Chapters 46 and 47 of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Part 5 Mystery of Mysteries, The King of the World. Chapter 46 The Subterranean Kingdom. Stop! whispered my old Mongol guide, as we were one day crossing the plain near Tsagan Luk. Stop! He slipped from his camel, which lay down without his bidding. The Mongol raised his hands in prayer before his face, and began to repeat the sacred phrase, Om Mani Padme Hung. The other Mongols immediately stopped their camels and began to pray. What has happened? I thought, as I gazed round, over the tender green grass, up to the cloudless sky and out toward the dreamy soft rays of the evening sun. The Mongols prayed for some time, whispered among themselves, and, after tightening up the packs on the camels, moved on. "'Did you see?' asked the Mongol. "'How our camels moved their ears in fear. How the herd of horses on the plain stood fixed in attention.' and how the herds of sheep and cattle lay crouched close to the ground? Did you notice that the birds did not fly, the marmots did not run, and the dogs did not bark? The air trembled softly, and bore from afar the music of a song which penetrated to the hearts of men, animals, and birds alike. Earth and sky ceased breathing. The wind did not blow, and the sun did not move. At such a moment the wolf that is stealing up on the sheep arrests his stealthy crawl. The frightened herd of antelopes suddenly checks its wild course. The knife of the shepherd cutting the sheep's throat falls from his hand. The rapacious ermine ceases to stalk the unsuspecting salga. All living beings in fear are involuntarily thrown into prayer and waiting for their fate. So it was just now. Thus it has always been whenever the king of the world in his subterranean palace prays and searches out the destiny of all the peoples on the earth. In this wise the old Mongol, a simple, coarse shepherd and hunter, spoke to me. Mongolia, with her nude and terrible mountains, her limitless plains, covered with the widely strewn bones of the forefathers, gave birth to mystery— her people, frightened by the stormy passions of nature, or lulled by her death-like peace, feel her mystery. Her red and yellow lamas preserve and poetize her mystery. The pontiffs of Lhasa and Urga know and possess her mystery. On my journey into Central Asia I came to know for the first time about the mystery of mysteries, which I can call by no other name. At the outset I did not pay much attention to it, and did not attach to it such importance as I afterwards realized belonged to it, when I had analyzed and connoted many sporadic, hazy, and often controversial bits of evidence. The old people on the shore of the river Amil related to me an ancient legend to the effect that a certain Mongolian tribe in their escape from the demands of Genghis Khan hid themselves in a subterranean country. Afterwards a soyot from near the lake of Nogan Kul showed me the smoking gate that serves as the entrance to the kingdom of Agarti. Through this gate a hunter formerly entered into the kingdom, 
and, after his return, began to relate what he had seen there. The lamas cut out his tongue in order to prevent him from telling about the mystery of mysteries. When he arrived at old age, he came back to the entrance of this cave and disappeared into the subterranean kingdom, the memory of which had ornamented and lightened his nomad heart. I received more realistic information about this from Hutuktu Jelib de Jiramsrap in Narabanji Kure. He told me the story of the semi-realistic arrival of the powerful king of the world from the subterranean kingdom, of his appearance, of his miracles, and of his prophecies. And only then did I begin to understand that in that legend, hypnosis, or mass vision, whichever it may be, is hidden not only mystery but a realistic and powerful force capable of influencing the course of the political life of Asia. From that moment I began making some investigations. The favourite Jilong Lama of Prince Chultan Bailey and the Prince himself gave me an account of the subterranean kingdom. "'Everything in the world,' said the Jilong, "'is constantly in a state of change and transition. People's science, religions, laws, and customs. How many great empires and brilliant cultures have perished!' and that alone which remains unchanged is evil, the tool of bad spirits. More than sixty thousand years ago, a holy man disappeared with a whole tribe of people under the ground, and never appeared again on the surface of the earth. Many people, however, have since visited this kingdom, Sakyamuni, Undorgegan, Paspa, Kanbebar, and others. No one knows where this place is, one says Afghanistan, others India. All the people there are protected against evil, and crimes do not exist within its bournes. Science has there developed calmly, and nothing is threatened with destruction. The subterranean people have reached the highest knowledge. Now it is a large kingdom, millions of men, with the king of the world as their ruler. He knows all the forces of the world, and reads all the souls of humankind and the great book of their destiny. Invisibly he rules eight hundred million men on the surface of the earth, and they will accomplish his every order. Prince Chultan Bailey added, This kingdom is Agarti. It extends throughout all the subterranean passages of the whole world. I heard a learned lama of China relating to Bagdu Khan, that all the subterranean caves of America are inhabited by the ancient people who have disappeared underground. Traces of them are still found on the surface of the land. These subterranean peoples and spaces are governed by rulers owing allegiance to the king of the world. In it there is not much of the wonderful. You know that in the two greatest oceans of the east and the west there were formerly two continents. They disappeared under the water, but their people went into the subterranean kingdom. In underground caves there exists a peculiar light which affords growth to the grains and vegetables, and long life without disease to the people. There are many different peoples, and many different tribes. An old Buddhist Brahmin in Nepal was carrying out the will of the gods in making a visit to the ancient kingdom of Genghis, Siam, where he met a fisherman who ordered him to take a place in his boat and sail with him upon the sea. On the third day they reached an island where he met a people having two tongues, which could speak separately in different languages. They showed to him 
peculiar, unfamiliar animals, tortoises with sixteen feet and one eye, huge snakes with a very tasty flesh, and birds with teeth which caught fish for their masters in the sea. These people told him that they had come up out of the subterranean kingdom, and described to him certain parts of the underground country. The Lama Turgat, travelling with me from Urga to Peking, gave me further details. The capital of Agarti is surrounded with towns of high priests and scientists. It reminds one of Lhasa, where the palace of the Dalai Lama, the Potala, is the top of a mountain covered with monasteries and temples. The throne of the king of the world is surrounded by millions of incarnated gods. They are the holy panditas. The palace itself is encircled by the palaces of the Goro, who possess all the visible and invisible forces of the earth, of inferno and of the sky, and who can do everything for the life and death of man. If our mad humankind should begin a war against them, they would be able to explode the whole surface of our planet and transform it into deserts. They can dry up the seas, transform lands into oceans, and scatter the mountains into the sands of the deserts. By his order trees, grasses, and bushes can be made to grow. Old and feeble men can become young and stalwart, and the dead can be resurrected. In cars strange and unknown to us they rush through the narrow cleavages inside our planet, some Indian Brahmins and Tibetan Dalai Lamas, during their laborious struggles to the peaks of mountains which no other human feet had trod, have found there inscriptions carved on the rocks, footprints in the snow and the tracks of wheels. The blissful Sakya Muni found on one mountain-top tablets of stone carrying words which he only understood in his old age, and afterwards penetrated into the kingdom of Agarti, from which he brought back crumbs of the sacred learning preserved in his memory. There, in palaces of wonderful crystal, live the invisible rulers of all pious people, the king of the world, or Brahitma, who can speak with God as I speak with you, and his two assistants, Mahitma, knowing the purposes of future events, and Mahinga, ruling the causes of these events. The holy Panditas study the world and all its forces. Sometimes the most learned among them collect together, and send envoys to that place where the human eyes have never penetrated. This is described by the Tashi Lama living eight hundred and fifty years ago. The highest Panditas place their hands on their eyes and at the base of the brain of younger ones, and force them into a deep sleep, wash their bodies with an infusion of grass, and make them immune to pain and harder than stones, wrap them in magic cloths, bind them, and then pray to the great God. The petrified youths lie with eyes and ears open and alert, seeing, hearing, and remembering everything. Afterwards a goro approaches, and fastens a long steady gaze upon them. Very slowly the bodies lift themselves from the earth and disappear. The goro sits and stares with fixed eyes to the place whither he has sent them. 
Invisible threads join them to his will. Some of them course among the stars, observe their events, their unknown peoples, their life and their laws. They listen to their talk, read their books, understand their fortunes and woes, their holiness and sins, their piety and evil. Some are mingled with flame and see the creatures of fire, quick and ferocious, eternally fighting, melting and hammering metals in the depths of planets, boiling the water for geysers and springs, melting the rocks and pushing out molten streams over the surface of the earth through the holes in the mountains. Others rush together with the ever-elusive, infinitesimally small, transparent creatures of the air, and penetrate into the mysteries of their existence and into the purposes of their life. Others slip into the depths of the seas, and observe the kingdom of the wise creatures of the water, who transport and spread genial warmth all over the earth, ruling the winds, waves, and storms. In Erdenitsu formerly lived Pandita Hutaktu, who had come from Agarti. As he was dying, he told about the time when he lived according to the will of the Goro on a red star in the east, floated in the ice-covered ocean, and flew among the stormy fires in the depths of the earth. These are the tales which I heard in the Mongolian yurtas of princes and in the Lamaite monasteries. These stories were all related in a solemn tone, which forbade challenge and doubt. Mystery End of chapter Chapter 47 The King of the World Before the Face of God during my stay in Urga I tried to find an explanation of this legend about the king of the world. Of course, the living Buddha could tell me most of all, and so I endeavoured to get the story from him. In a conversation with him, I mentioned the name of the king of the world. The old pontiff sharply turned his head toward me, and fixed upon me his immobile blind eyes. Unwillingly, I became silent. Our silence was a long one, and after it the pontiff continued the conversation in such a way that I understood he did not wish to accept the suggestion of my reference. On the faces of the others present I noticed expressions of astonishment and fear produced by my words, and especially was this true of the custodian of the library of the Bagdu Khan. One can readily understand that all this only made me the more anxious to press the pursuit. As I was leaving the study of the Bagdu Hutuktu, I met the librarian who had stepped out ahead of me, and asked him if he would show me the library of the living Buddha, and used a very simple, sly trick with him. "'Do you know, my dear Lama, I said, "'once I rode in the plain at the hour when the king of the world spoke with God, and I felt the impressive majesty of this moment.' To my astonishment the old Lama very quietly answered me, it is not right that the Buddhist and of our yellow faith should conceal it. The acknowledgment of the existence of the most holy and most powerful man, of the blissful kingdom, of the great temple of sacred science, is such a consolation to our sinful hearts and our corrupt lives, that to conceal it from humankind is a sin. Well, listen, he continued. 
Throughout the whole year, the king of the world guides the work of the Panditas and Goros of Agarti. Only at times he goes to the temple cave, where the embalmed body of his predecessor lies in a black stone coffin. This cave is always dark, but when the king of the world enters it, the walls are striped with fire, and from the lid of the coffin appear tongues of flame. The eldest Goro stands before him with covered head and face, and with hands folded across his chest. This Goro never removes the covering from his face, for his head is a nude skull with living eyes and a tongue that speaks. He is in communion with the souls of all who have gone before. The king of the world prays for a long time, and afterwards approaches the coffin and stretches out his hand. The flames thereon burn brighter, the stripes of fire on the walls disappear and revive, interlace, and form mysterious signs from the alphabet Vatanan. From the coffin transparent bands of scarcely noticeable light begin to flow forth. These are the thoughts of his predecessor. Soon the king of the world stands surrounded by an aureole of this light, and fiery letters write and write upon the walls the wishes and orders of God. At this moment, the king of the world is in contact with the thoughts of all the men who influenced the lot and life of all humankind, with kings, czars, khans, warlike leaders, high priests, scientists, and other strong men. He realizes all their thoughts and plans. If these be pleasing before God, the king of the world will invisibly help them. If they are unpleasant in the sight of God, the king will bring them to destruction. This power is given to Agarti by the mysterious signs of Om, with which we begin all our prayers. Om is the name of an ancient holy man, the first Goro, who lived three hundred thirty thousand years ago. He was the first man to know God, and who taught humankind to believe, hope, and struggle with evil. Then God gave him power over all forces ruling the visible world. After his conversation with his predecessor, the king of the world assembles the great council of God, judges the actions and thoughts of great men, helps them or destroys them. Mahitma and Mahinga find the place for these actions and thoughts in the causes ruling the world. Afterwards the king of the world enters the great temple and prays in solitude. Fire appears on the altar, gradually spreading to all the altars near, and through the burning flame gradually appears the face of God. The king of the world reverently announces to God the decisions and awards of the council of God, and receives in turn the divine orders of the Almighty. As he comes forth from the temple, the king of the world radiates with divine light. End of chapter.